We'll turn with me this morning. You have your copy of God's Word to James chapter 4. If you've been with us, we've been studying this letter together. And uh, finding from it, I think, some extremely helpful and important implications about the way that we live our lives. James has been carefully arguing that the expression of our lives points to the inward reality of our hearts. That you cannot claim to love Christ and to be in a relationship with him and simply live however you choose. That, that a fruitful life of holiness and obedience uh, is the only fruit that is produced from the tree of salvation. And so we've been studying James together, and we come this morning then to James chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 1 through 8, and we're going to see from it what God has to say to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you that you give us life and breath and ability, or that you call us to worship you and to glorify you and then give us the ability to do so. God, now as we turn our attention to your word and want to read and study it rightly, we recognize our own inability. So, God, we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would open our eyes that we would see, or that you would open our ears that we would hear, or that you would open our hearts that we might receive truth, or that you would transform us by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, if you were with us last week, um, in, in, in the very end of chapter 3, James furthers his argument about teaching. And, 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 if, and if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 3, he begins with the statement that not all of you who desire to be teachers should be teachers. Uh, that, that our words are dangerous, that our language is important, and that from words and the language that we use, it's a very important and precious gift that God's given us, but from them, we can produce great uh, tragedy and do great harm, and we can also produce great benefit for others. And so in light of that reality, he says, those, those among you, let, let, let not all of you who desire to be teachers be teachers. One of the questions then is why? And so he furthers his argument then at the very end of chapter 3, by telling them that one of the reasons, maybe the main reason not all of you should be teachers, is because though you possess knowledge, some certain intellectual facts, some certain academic degree, though you possess knowledge, you do not possess wisdom. 
And so he makes a dividing line, if you will, between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the scriptures. And that leads then into a transition about worldliness, which is the last topic that we know from from chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It's the last topic that James has set out and set before us as a topic of discussion. And so he's going to spend all of sort of chapter 4 dealing with the issue of worldliness, that Christians are called to live lives of separation, lives of holiness, a certain personal and inward piety that is to characterize those of us who exist in a relationship with Christ. And the passage serves, I think, as a good transition because while he has told us where those wisdoms come from and to some degree, in very general terms, what those wisdoms sort of look like, what he's going to show us and begin to tell us and sort of argue for us in chapter 4, especially here in today's passage, he's going to show us the result of those wisdoms or the result maybe of following those wisdoms. So what happens when one leads a life that espouses and follows the dictates and the wisdom of the world? That you administrate and orchestrate your life according to the wisdom of the world rather than according to the wisdom of God and the wisdom of heaven and the wisdom of the scriptures. And I think that's at least in part what we see in this passage today. Notice what he says. He talks about these quarrels. What, what causes these fights among you, these quarrels? And then he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you. It's interesting language there. Um, the tendency, I think, for us to read that in, in, in English is to think that he's talking about the passions that are at war inside of us. And I think in the context, and actually according to the language, that's probably not the best understanding. It, it's the passions that are at war within your members. And I think he's talking to a church, he's talking to God's people, and he's talking about their fighting They're infighting and they're grumbling and quarreling with and among one another. And so he says, where do these quarrels and these fights come from? They are from your individual passions, but those individual passions are at war with one another. And they cause us, inwardly and outwardly, to be at war with one another. He says, you do... You desire and you do not have, so you murder. See the, the result? You, it's, an, it's an outward expression of these inward passions that we have. We covet, but we can't get or obtain, so what? So we fight and we quarrel. See the outward expressions? It's where these quarrels come from. And he says we don't have because we don't ask, and we ask and don't receive because we ask in the wrong way to spend it on these passions that are inside of us. And then he says, you adulterous people. It's very strong language there. The language of adultery that... Uh, We have not been faithful to the promises that we've made, that we've entered into a covenant, and we have broken the terms of that covenant with God. You adulterous people, by quarreling and fighting, he gets to you adulterous people. And then he says this, sort of the summary judgment, if you will, that is the driving force for these verses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Well, the question when you read this is how do you get from quarreling and fighting amongst yourselves inside the church, inside of God's people, to worldliness, to friendship with the world? Well, point number one, I think what we have to see here is first that our fighting, our infighting, our quarreling uh, among ourselves, it is evidence that we are in fact at enmity with God. Now, that's a bit scandalous. Because we all argue and fight, don't we? And it's very difficult with many people from many different 
generations. It's maybe one of the biggest gaps, isn't it? And, and many different races and cultures with many different passions, the same word I'll use as what's used here, maybe with a different, maybe with a different intention, but with different people, different backgrounds who've come from different family situations, who have maybe come from different cultures, who perhaps speak different languages, whatever the case may be, we are very different people and it's very difficult, isn't it? For, for people of such differing backgrounds and inward realities to coexist in harmony, to love one another, to esteem one another, to look out for one another, to forgive one another. It's very difficult. But what James is telling us, whatever he's describing in verses 1 through 3, he then comes down to the sort of summary, if you will, in verse 4, that we are adulterous by virtue of uh, that is, we're adulterous and it's shown by, by these things that we are doing, this fighting, this quarreling. And then he equates the fighting and the quarreling with our friendship with the world or worldliness that is necessarily also enmity with God. And so that's pretty strong language and it's pretty important for us to understand how it is that our worldliness that is expressed in these ways is necessarily at enmity with God and makes us an enemy of God. I mean, look at the next verse. Anyone that is a friend of the world or that uh, desires friendship, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Look, therefore, whoever wants to be or desires to be, that's, that's language of the same language as the passions from the first three verses, the, the language of desire and selfish ambition, whoever wishes or desires to be a friend of the world, what? Necessarily makes himself an enemy of God. So that there, there are these two realities that are, in, uh, th- th- that are contrasting and that are different from one another, that are in contradiction to one another. So I want you to understand the logic here. Let's, let's begin at the end. He says, friendmity, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So what is the friendship with the world that he speaks of? He doesn't actually define it for us. He doesn't actually tell us what it is. He never says, this friendship with the world that I speak of, this worldliness, I want to refer to it like that, that I'm speaking of, here's what it is. And here's what I mean by that. What he does is he characterizes it for us. He characterizes the friendship with the world that is necessarily in enmity with God. He says that those who befriend the world are those who what? Two things. Who fight amongst themselves. What causes these fights and these quarrels among you? You see? The, the question, where does the quarreling and the fighting come from? All you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. So what? You fight and you Quarrel. So the first characteristic of those who are friends of the world, and we're going to move backwards, and I'm going to show you how these are connected, are those who are fighting amongst themselves in the church. And secondly, they are so fighting in order to get the things that they desire. That's a very important connection. He says friendship with the world is enmity with God. The two are in contradiction to one another. So if you work back from that, you say, well, what is that friendship? Well, he hasn't given us a definition, but he's given us the characteristics. Those who are in friendship with the world are those who are fighting amongst themselves and quarreling amongst themselves. And the reason they are quarreling, which is getting to the root of the issue, is because they desire and they do not have. So they are they are 
fighting and quarreling in order to obtain the desires of their heart. So do you see that this worldliness, what it really is, this friendship with the world, what it really is? What he's arguing is that this worldliness, this friendship, it's administrating or orchestrating or creating and living your life according to the wisdom of the world. Opposed to what he was arguing in the very end of chapter 3, opposed to the wisdom from heaven. That, That there are these two directions of wisdom that one can follow and uh, set up their life according to, and that those who set their lives according to the wisdom of the world and follow the path of the wisdom of the world, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, they are those who are friends of the world. They are those who are characterized by worldliness. And what, what, is, what it leads to is fighting amongst yourselves because you have all these things that you desire, these passions that you long to fulfill, that you cannot fulfill, these desires that you do not have, so you look to your neighbor to get it. You murder in order to obtain. You covet, you want, and they have. You desire, so you fight and you quarrel and you try to get these things for yourself. I mean, think about what this wisdom of the world is. You don't have to look far in Barnes and Noble to find it. You don't have to flip through many channels on your TV to find it. Let me, let, me, let me give you just a little bit of what I think the wisdom of the world is. You ready? The world tells you, if you want it, you should have it. Does it? Right? All the things we want, listen, in Barnes and Noble, for just about anything you want, there's a 10 or 20 or 30 step book for how to get it. Why? Because if you want it, it should be yours. And let's take it a step further. The world also says not only if you want it, should it be yours, it should be yours. Why? Because man, oh man, you deserve it. Man, you've worked hard. You've sacrificed so much for everybody else in your life. It's time for a little you time. Right? You want it, so you should have it, and you should have it because you deserve it. And let's take it a step further. The wisdom of the world also says if someone else has it, you should want it. If someone else has it, you should deserve it. And if someone else has it, and you want it and deserve it and don't have it, you're probably more deserving than they are anyway. And so if you deserve it, you should at least long for it, but you should maybe even simply just take it. Go get it. It should be yours. The world says, listen to your heart. That you're really good on the inside. Just ask Oprah or Dr. Phil or Joel Osteen for that matter. You're good on the inside. And so these desires that you have on the inside, they are good desires. If you desire it naturally, then it cannot be wrong. If God made you this way and gave you this desire, then you should do everything in your power to obtain and satisfy the desire. You are the determiner of your own destiny. You are responsible for you. And friends, the world says if you're not going to look after you, then nobody else is. Looking out for number one, as they call it, right? You, You have to take it upon yourself to avenge all wrongs, to further yourself in society and in culture, to get the the best education, to be all you can be, that it's all up to you. 
You make your own destiny. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. In fact, the world says, listen, seek all the pleasure and satisfaction that you can today. For tomorrow, you will suffer and die. Isn't, isn't that the message of the world? Live for today. You know, live fast and die young. Live for today. For tomorrow, you suffer and die. Prince, when we live like that, do you see that what we do is we end up looking just like the characteristics of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? I look at what you have, and I think I deserve it. I look at what you have, and I think I'm more deserving than you are. I question why you have it and why I don't. So I do everything in my power to get it. I work harder and harder and harder to keep up with the things that you have. I'm jealous for the things that you have. I covet the things that you have and potentially murder in order to take the things that you have so that they can be mine and I can enjoy that pleasure today. For if I don't look out for me today, nobody else is going to and tomorrow I will die and I will not have all of these desires of my heart. Do do you see the wisdom of the world? Friends, let's think about the wisdom of heaven that he spoke of and that he's told us about how important this wisdom is. At the very end of chapter 3, what does the scripture tell us? God tells us something very different. The gospel calls us to something very different. It sounds something like this. If you have it, give it to someone who doesn't. If someone else has it, praise God with them for his blessing in their life. If you want it, trust God to give it to you in his time. Friends, and if God doesn't give it to you, then know in your heart that you must not have needed it. The gospel calls us to esteem others as better than ourselves. Friends, the wisdom of the world is look out for number one. The wisdom of the gospel and of the scriptures and of heaven is to look out for number two and three and four and five. And everybody else around you to esteem your neighbor as better than yourself. The gospel calls us to forsake our hearts and our desires. What? And replace them with trust in the Lord. For the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? The gospel tells us that we are sinful on the inside and that we are in need of redemption and transformation that only comes from another. That our desires then are also sinful and deceitful and can be hurtful. That God directs our path and that God is worthy of our trust. That there is no need to preserve your own life and avenge the wrongs that come to you because God will protect and preserve you and he is the avenger of all wrongs. And that there is something at work in creation that is far bigger than you, that you're really that insignificant. That there's something going on that that God is doing in creation that is way bigger than you. And he graciously and mercifully allows you to be a part of it. Friends, the gospel, unlike the world, which says live for today, for tomorrow you suffer and die. Find all the joy and all the pleasure and all the satisfaction that you can and harbor it up for yourself now. The gospel says, endure with patience the sufferings of today as you look for the glory and the joy and the peace and the pleasure that is coming to you tomorrow. Do you see, do you see the difference? So while he doesn't define for us what this friendship with the world is. Do you see that those who live for themselves and whose lives are characterized by self-preservation and selfish ambition, 
who fight and quarrel and murder one another, it is because they are following the wisdom of the world. And friends, if you want to know whether or not you are a friend of the world or like Abraham, a friend of God, look at the wisdom with which and by which you run and rule and orchestrate your life. The wisdom of the world and following it and the wisdom of God and following it, they are mutually exclusive realities for no man can serve two masters, can he? If we are friends of the world, like James says in verse 3 and 4 here, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that is to say, whoever desires to live a life according to the wisdom of the world and to befriend that wisdom, they are necessarily and making themselves an enemy of God. Why? Because we are trusting in ourselves, not in God. We are seeking ourselves in our own glory, not him in his glory. We are looking to our own power, not to his. We are led by our own desires and our own wills, not by his. We are listening to our hearts instead of the heart of God who made us. Friends, do you see that our worldliness, that the worldliness that is rampant in the church today that it's not really a behavior problem it's a heart problem james like all of the arguments he's made up to this point he is characterizing by virtue of the behavior that it exhibits the inward reality of the heart that you quarrel and fight and murder and covet and you you have a life that is run according to the wisdom of the world ultimately because you are an enemy of god because you are separated from him because you lead a life apart from him The interesting thing about this reality that he points to, though he only gives us the negative, is to think that the converse of this is also true. Think about this with me. That just as those who are friends with the world are at enmity with God, God's people who are friends of him are at enmity with the world and with the ruler of this age. Turn, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Turn all the way back to the beginning. As God is handing down the judgments because of their disobedience, Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin. And he's speaking to the serpent who is the ruler of this age. Right? Who is the author of the wisdom of the world, if you will. And he's speaking to Eve, one of his own. Who he has dealt graciously with. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, The Lord God then said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Talking to the serpent. Above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then look. I will put enmity. Same word. You see it there? Between you and the woman. And from the woman... Her offspring and your offspring, between you there will be enmity. Why? Because from her will come one, from her seed will come one. He shall bruise your head and kill you, and you shall only bruise his heel and harm him. Okay, so so just very quickly, he is setting up then. There are two lineages. There is the lineage of God and the lineage of the world. There is the seed of the serpent 
And there is the seed of the woman. And from the seed of the woman would ultimately come Christ. Jesus, when he came, it's the reason that the genealogies are given. He is the New Testament and ultimate fulfillment and reality of God's promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. That from the seed of the woman and from the lineage of, of, of the woman would come this redeemer who would ultimately put to death the serpent and the world and the wisdom of the world. But do you see that if we follow the wisdom of the world and we befriend the wisdom of this age, then we are necessarily at enmity with God. But friends, if we are friends of God, if we are his people, then we are necessarily having enmity put between us and the world. So that just as much as those who are friends of the world are at enmity with God, we are those of us who are God's people. We don't love the world. We're in, we are enemies, <laughs> We are at enmity. There is a strife and a struggle moment by moment and day by day between God's people and those in the world. People talk about all the time. It's a, you know, it's uh, conflicting spirits. Friends, that's what they mean. When, when people don't like you and they don't know why they don't like you. When people can't stand and, and find all sorts of false judgments because of your holiness and your righteousness and they slander you and they put you down and speak ill of you and they don't know why. They don't know why they disdain you the way that they do. Friends, because to, to, be, to be relationally with God is not to be relationally intimate with the world. It is to be at enmity between the two. So first, we must understand that, at least according to the logic of James here, that our fighting amongst ourselves, it is evidence that ultimately we are at enmity with God, that we exist a life, uh, exist in a life apart from him and separated from him. And so very practically, let me simply employ you, church, as God's people, those who claim to believe and trust in him and to love him and have been redeemed and transformed by him. Let us love one another. I mean, l- listen, you're not always going to like me. I'm not always going to like you. It's okay. While I hated God, and, and while you hated God and stood opposed to everything that he was and is, he loved you enough to die for you and to, to go far to get you and to redeem and to reconcile you and to extend grace upon grace and mercy to you. Friends, that's the calling for us in the church, isn't it? Then when we have different ideas and different opinions and when someone offends you and does something wrong to you and something sinful to you, what's the calling? It is to grow together and to learn to love one another in spite of one another, whereby reflecting the gospel and, and showing that we are not at enmity with God, but that we are united together under the banner of the gospel and under the blood of Christ, and we are at enmity with the world. Friends, you've heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Friends, no matter how different we are, we are united in our fight we are united under the gospel. We are united in our possession of God's spirit. And no matter how different we are, we're more alike than those who are in the world. So, so let's, not, let's not as a church be characterized by this type of fighting. For James says that if you seek this friendship with the world, you are necessarily making yourself an enemy of God. But secondly, secondly and finally, worldliness cannot be cured by inner strength or will. The question then is, how do we do this? 
The question then is, where does the power to live like this come from? How do we learn how to love one another like this? How do we learn how to be in a relationship with God and with one another like this, where we are not characterized by quarreling and fighting and selfish ambition and drive, but where we are setting ourselves aside on account of another, where we are esteeming others as higher than ourselves, as we are giving what God has given us so that others would benefit? How do we do that? It's, it's not by looking inside. Friends, it's, it's not by looking in here. If you look in here, you're going to be driven by the passions and the sinful inward desires that we see in the first three verses. Where must we look? We must look outside of ourselves to one who is greater than us. Look, this reality begins. Look at verse 5. He says, Do you suppose it is, no, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously for the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The first thing that you need to realize if you're ever going to have any hope at living like this and uh, honoring and obeying the wisdom of God over against the wisdom of the world is you must understand that God is jealous for your soul. That God is interested in your holiness more so than you are. That God is interested in our relational compatibility than we are. God is interested in our loving one another such that it reflects the gospel to the world more than even we are. And when we are living according to the wisdom of the world, when we are serving ourselves, when we are an adulterous people, God looks at us with anger and with jealousy. Why? Because God made us, didn't he? In his likeness. As the crown of his creation. And then he breathed into each one of us the breath of life. And he, and he endowed us with a soul and with moral capacity. And then he called us to worship him. And, and friends, when we lead a life according to the wisdom of the world that serves ourselves and worships and glories in ourselves and exalts ourselves and benefits only ourselves... We are not doing what we were created to do, are we? And friends, God is jealous. God is a jealous God, the scripture tell us. God is jealous for our souls that we would be called and redeemed to do what we were made to do. But what's necessary for that to happen? Look, he's jealous for the spirit that he made to dwell in us. And then here it is, verse 6. But, or so, he gives more grace. Friends, the only way that anybody is ever going to live a life like this, the only way that any sinner is ever going to effectively and passionately and diligently serve and honor God the way they were created to, to bring about his glory, to manifest his name and his holiness in their life, the only way a sinner is going to do that is through grace and redemption. Right? The wisdom of the world says you don't need it. Friends, the wisdom of a lot of religions says that you don't need it. That you just need to tap into the goodness that's inside. But biblical Christianity, what? It says the wisdom of the scriptures, what? It says that you are evil and that you are sinful and that you have a darkened heart. And if you're ever going to live like this and exemplify a life of holiness that, that points to understanding the wisdom of God, it is only going to be because grace has transformed you. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says in the scriptures it's speaking of, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He created you. He made you in his image. He breathed into you the breath of life. He is grieved by your adultery and your idolatry and mine. 
He is bringing his wrath and judgment against those who are remaining arrogantly in their sin and forsaking the God that gave them the breath that they breathe. But in order to solve this issue, he provides grace. Verse 6 is gloriously wonderful news. What does his grace do? Look at verse 7. He gives grace to the humble, number one, so that they submit themselves to God. This is not a call to just be better. This is a call to receive grace and to be transformed, and then you will be able to submit yourself to God. Notice grace comes first. The first outworking of this in the life of the believer is a submission to God and a denial of yourself. Friends, it's one or the other. If you're in submission to God and his will for your life and his desires, you are not in submission to your own. You're putting them to death moment by moment. And so the the difference, if you will, from what's characterized at verses 1 through 4 is seen after grace comes in verse 6, beginning in verse 7, first of all, that the one to whom grace has come, they submit themselves to God. And the calling is that we would do that, that we would not have received, as James said, the grace of God in vain. Secondly, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What? So that God's grace comes, we are able to submit, and we are able to fight. That, that grace is an empowering agent, that it strengthens us for the task at hand. That God calls us, but then he does not leave us unable. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to this lifestyle that he's laying before us. And then he gives us the ability to do so. Grace comes and then we are able to resist. And then the devil will flee from us. And then thirdly, look, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, this is the antithesis of what we see in verse 3, what? Of drawing near to the world. Drawing near to the world. All of the language in verses 1 through 10 in this chapter of James, it's all language of relationship and intimacy. That that there are two options. Friends, you can draw near to the world and near to yourself. You can look inwardly, trust in yourself, serve yourself, and you can become a friend of the world. You can live according to the wisdom of the world. Or you can draw near to God. You can submit to him. You can receive his grace. You can resist the devil and flee. Draw near to God and then look according to his grace. And he will draw near to you. Friends, let me tell you this. There's not a single soul that's ever existed that fervently and honestly and in humility desired to draw near to God, that God did not come much farther to them. There's always forgiveness. There's always relationship. There's always grace upon grace upon grace. And this morning, if, if, if you have spent decades serving yourself, maybe a life, a lifetime of befriending the world and living according to its wisdom and looking out for yourself and avenging your own wrongs and seeking to satisfy the pleasures of your own heart today. And let me tell you, it's not too late. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In fact, he, he, he will come to you. He, he will meet you where you are. 
He has never turned one away that sought relationship and fellowship with him. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Speaking about repentance. So grace leads to submission. Grace leads to fighting. Grace leads to relationship and intimacy with God. And ultimately, the expression of all of these things together is a changed life, repentance. Cleanse your hearts. Purify yourself. You changed. You see that James is simply articulating what he's been saying for four chapters, or three and a half. And that is, let all the world see your love for Christ and your relationship with him in the way that you live. Let us lead lives of personal holiness that is characterized by honoring God and the wisdom of the scriptures and is seen in our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel that we find in these verses. God, help us to see that we cannot be friends with the world and your children altogether. That, God, if we are yours, we are not of this world. And if we are of this world, we are not yours. God, I pray that we would all look honestly and openly at our lives. That we would be willing to recognize the worldliness that is in each of our hearts. And, Father, that we would be driven by your grace to repentance. Lord, we pray for grace today. It's what we need. We cannot simply be better. We cannot learn to love and forgive one another more. But, God, you give grace to the humble, and so humbly we ask. Lord, you say we have not because we ask. And so, Father, we ask that you would bestow grace upon us today, that your grace would lead to our submission, that we would find joy and satisfaction in your will and your plan and your desires for us. God, that it would lead to fighting that we would be vehemently fighting sin, turning from it into the cross. God, that it would lead to fellowship, that we would be in an intimate relationship with you, that as we draw near to you, you would be drawing near to us. God, and that those things would bring about repentance, that we would be broken over our sin, repenting of them and receiving forgiveness. And we pray that these truths would be written upon our hearts this day. And that the world would see Jesus in our relationships with one another. In Christ's name we pray.